After the liturgy of the sacrament, we turn to the liturgy of the Word, the service of the Word, and we're going, we're going to read from Exodus chapter 36. So I invite you to turn with me in the Pew Bible to page 97. Page 97. Exodus 36, beginning at verse 35. After that, we'll read from Revelation chapter 2. And here in Exodus, the Lord gives instructions about the tabernacle, and He mentions specifically some of the designs to be woven uh, into the walls of the tabernacle. I invite you to pay attention to what He says about the cherubim. The cherubim are the angels of God. We begin at verse 35. He, and that would be Moses, he made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. With cherubim skillfully worked into it, he made it. And for it, he made four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold, and he cast for them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework, and its five pillars with their hooks. He overlaid their capitals, and their fillets were of gold, and their five bases were of bronze. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. From there we turn to Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapter 2, the verses 1 through 7. And there the Lord Jesus says through the hand of John, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I invite you to turn with me to Genesis 3, where we'll be focusing in the preaching on verses 21 through 24, the last portion of this chapter, the last of our series of sermons on these chapters. Verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life." So far, our text, in response to the preaching, we'll sing from hymn 73, the stanzas 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we arrive at the closing scene in chapter 3 of Genesis, the closing scene in that well-known Garden of Eden. We've seen in earlier sermons how God planted this garden by His own hand, how He placed man in that garden to till it and to keep it. We've watched intently as the Lord created for Adam a helper suitable for him, a wife, out of his own rib, and brought her to the man there in that paradise of God. We've eagerly looked into the garden to catch a glimpse of how it was that man was living there in perfect harmony with his God, having beautiful fellowship also as husband and wife, working as a team to fulfill God's commandments. We've, we've done our best to try and glimpse that. But now this afternoon, we must bid farewell to the Garden of Eden, for we've also seen how man ruined the garden by listening to the serpent. We've observed how man wanted to become wiser than God, but ended up hiding in fear from God. And with deep disquiet in our hearts and tears in our eyes, we watched how the husband blamed both God and his wife for his own sin. 
And then the wife turned to blame the serpent for her sin and how all three fell under God's punishment. We've seen the Lord enter the the garden not in pristine fellowship but in very sad judgment. And now at last we see today that man must exit the garden altogether. Sin changes everything. And yet, beloved, God is greater than sin. And even in His wrath, even in His punishing way, He remembers mercy. And so I proclaim to you the Lord, this word of the Lord, in hope the Lord drives out man from His presence. In hope the Lord drives man out of His presence. We'll see that the Lord in this way checks our depravity, He covers our shame, and He preserves our home. It really is quite a sad scene here in our text. The Garden of Eden, after all, was man's first home, and now he's got to leave that home. And we should notice that man does not willingly go out of the garden on his own. It's not the case that man decides to voluntarily exit the garden in order to fulfill God's command to exercise dominion over the rest of the earth. He's not going out there to till and cultivate it, to expand the garden. That might have been the case had things gone differently, but no, we have to say that man was forcibly evicted from the garden. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden. And again, verse 24, he drove the man out. Man didn't want to go, but God kicks him out, so to speak. That is a very, very difficult situation. Have you ever had to leave your home, beloved? I think for many of us who've had to leave the home we grew up in, or perhaps the first home we had as a married couple, the, the first home we raised a number of our children in, that when it came time to have to leave that home, it wasn't all that easy, was it? And now imagine how much more difficult and painful it would be if you were forced to move against your will. It can break your heart to leave the home that you love, can't it? Well, how much more then for Adam and Eve? For their home, it wasn't just a cozy corner of the world they could call their own. No, this place, this garden was special. It was God's garden. We saw that. He planted it. And He made this garden to be like what we would consider a giant park filled with trees and shrubs and flowers and meadows, pathways and fields with animals of every variety. It would have been a most pleasant place for man to live, but what made it the best place on earth was that God Himself spent time there in the Garden of Eden. The Creator put man in this garden paradise as a place where He could talk and walk with them. The Creator would come and commune with them, a place where He would come in the cool of the day, we read that last time, and speak with them as a father to His children. But now the children are forced out. They're cut off from regular fellowship with their Maker, driven out from the presence of the Lord. 
That's the terrible loss here. Absolutely, it's a terrible thing to lose the physical environment of the Garden of Eden, the beautiful home that it was. But even worse was to lose that close contact with God, to no longer be able to walk with Him in the cool of the day, face to face, as it were. That was the, a tragedy almost too much for man to bear. More than being evicted from Eden, Adam and Eve were excommunicated from that perfect fellowship with their Maker. A man deserved this, of course. We've seen that. We deserved much more, didn't we? By rights, we earned instant eternal death. That should have been what we got. And yet God came into the garden and did, though He did punish, He also promised and promised life. We were cast out of God's presence because of our sin, and yet even as God casts us out of the garden, there's mercy in His punishment. Look with me at verse 22. Then the Lord God said there, Behold, the man now has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then the Lord proceeds to cast him out of the garden. Now I said there's mercy there, and we'll, have to, we'll get to the mercy in just a moment, but we have to pause over a question that's often asked about what the Lord means here when He says the man has now become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Is the Lord agreeing with what Satan had said earlier to Eve? You remember how He tempted her when you eat of the fruit said the serpent, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. The Lord seems to say Satan was right. Has man then really become like God? Well, not in the way that Satan meant it and Eve understood it. For man did not become like God in every way, but only in one particular very limited way, in knowing good and evil, as the Lord says here. God, we know, is perfect. He's holy. We sang that in hymn 5. But man, as we've seen, became a depraved sinner, corrupted by sin. There's no good inside of human beings any longer. Man hates God. Adam and Eve ran from God, tried to hide from God. Adam and Eve were at each other's throats, blaming each other, or at least blaming someone else for their sin, trying to preserve themselves. So man is not like God in, in, in just every respect, nor is it the case that man suddenly gained all knowledge in the universe as God knows it. If that had been the case, then mankind would never have tried to put on an apron of leaves to cover his shame because he would have known that wouldn't work. The truth is man became like God in one very restricted way. He knew good and evil. And yet even that is in a limited or in a different way than God's knowledge of good and evil. God only knows evil from a distance. He knows evil in others only as 
disobedience in his creatures. Inside of God himself, there is no evil. There's no unrighteousness. But with man, it's the opposite. Man certainly knows evil. He knows it now from personal experience. He knows evil from within. On the one hand, because Adam and Eve were made in God's image, they understand what good is. But having believed the lie of the devil, mankind now knows what evil is because evil lives within mankind. We know sin, brothers and sisters, because we are sinners. We know evil because we are, at our core, evil, corrupt. And then you can begin to see the mercy and God's grace in banishing us from His presence and banishing us particularly from that tree of life. The Lord God underlines that point in verse 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's unpack that a little bit. The cherubim, we read about them in Exodus, the cherubim are special angels of the Lord that are always close to God's presence. In the book of Exodus elsewhere, we can read about them being woven into the curtains. We, we read particularly about how they were carved onto the lid of the ark on the mercy seat. They were two cherubs were on either end of the ark looking down on that lid we can think of how they're presented in Isaiah's famous vision, chapter 6 of his prophecy, hovering in flight around the Lord's throne. We sang about them in hymn 5. What do they do there? They declare the Lord's holiness day and night. So in Scripture, where the cherubim are, there is God Himself. Their presence signals and is meant to signify the Lord's presence. And notice that the cherubim are on guard duty here. And with them, we read, a flaming sword that turned every way. When you read that carefully, it's quite a striking little picture. The text literally speaks of the cherubim and then separately of the flaming sword turning itself around and around. So the picture we get goes something like this. There on the east of Eden are two of God's special angels standing guard. And out in front of those two angels is a suspended in midair a flaming sword that is flashing back and forth, wielded evidently by an invisible hand. That sword in and of itself was known to be, or was obvious enough to be, a weapon of destruction. But now with unceasing flame and fire coming off this sword, and with it an unknown hand brandishing it back and forth, it speaks of swift and severe judgment from above. Can you imagine Adam and Eve looking upon that scene, how terrifying it would have been to them? 
There they have symbols of the divine presence, the two cherubim, alongside a stark symbol of the divine wrath, the flaming sword. That would be enough to deter even the dullest of humans from passing that way. It was loud and clear, the message. Nobody, no human, was to gain access to the tree of life. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God cut off His creatures from the tree of life? Well, this was not the Lord somehow protecting His own turf, as Satan once wickedly implied. No, this is our God protecting us from ourselves. Imagine if we had been allowed to eat from the tree of life. You recall how the Lord, by His own word, had attached a promise to that particular tree. Man had to make a choice, you recall. Those two trees were standing beside each other in the middle of the garden. The eating of the one tree would lead to everlasting life. The eating of the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that would lead to everlasting death. Man was initially permitted to eat from the tree of life, but he chose instead to eat from that forbidden tree. So if he were now permitted to eat from the tree of life, man would indeed live forever, but here's the rub. He would live forever not in harmony with his God, but he would live forever in his new state as a fallen creature. He would live forever as a rebel, as a miserable, depraved being. The tree of life, it could only extend life as it was, but it could not take away sin. And that's what man needed so badly. Can you imagine, brothers and sisters, living forever in the present state of existence that we're in? Living forever in our sin, in, in the misery of this world, in our despair. You know, there's nobody that looks kindly upon death itself. But one thing worse than death is living this life forever. Just think about that. This life with its strife and its tension and its anxieties and its wickedness and its evil and its filled with broken hearts and broken dreams. You want to live this life forever? You've got to be crazy. You see, the Lord did us a favor, a tremendous favor by cutting us off from the tree. It was His way of, of checking our depravity. Man will not live forever with his evil heart. The misery of this life will not go on ad nauseum. The perverted nature of man will not go on into eternity. He cast us away from the tree of life to give us hope for a new and better life. A better life where our shame will be taken completely away. For even before the Lord sent man out of the garden, He gave him a sign of hope that there was something better coming. We come across that in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. 
It's another one of those little details we could easily pass over. But let's ask ourselves this question, beloved. Why did the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, why does He suddenly get into the tailoring business, so to speak? Why does God concern Himself with the clothes of His people? You know, a lot of people today don't think God is interested all that much in physical clothing. People say things like, well, my outward appearance doesn't matter to God because God sees my heart. I wonder what they think of a verse like this then. As if God is only God of my insides and not God of my outsides. As if He's only interested in my soul and not my body. Didn't God create us with both? Well, what exactly is the Lord concerned about here? Why is He replacing their fig leaves with animal skins? Well, it goes back to when they ate that forbidden fruit earlier in chapter 3. Their eyes were opened, we read about that, and they knew they were naked. Adam and Eve realized they were naked, and at the same moment they were filled with shame, you recall. Our inner guilt, our, our sin and rebellion, it's made plain to all of humanity in that awful feeling of shame that we have of our nakedness. The very fact that humans have an instinct to cover up their nakedness is an indicator of guilt before God. So God acts to clothe our first parents to truly cover their nakedness. That, beloved, is an act of grace meant to cover our guilt. That's quite different from society around us, isn't it? Adam and Eve, they, they knew their guilt and they ran for cover when they heard the sound of God. But the sinful world, what does it do? It denies its sin, it eschews its guilt, and it runs to uncover itself so often, doesn't it? In a world that increasingly has no conscience, or you could say a seared conscience that hardens itself over against the law of God, it is no wonder that nakedness, exposing of the flesh, nudity is becoming part and parcel of everyday life. I mean, just think some of our middle-aged to older members will have seen the transition. Think of how primetime television once had standards for the level of nudity permitted. Shameless nakedness and pornographic imagery, it certainly was available a generation ago, but you generally had to pay for it. You had to kind of go out of your way to find it. Now it's on many regular television shows. It's accessible easily on YouTube and on TikTok videos, and you don't have to be a particular age to get on any of those. You must have seen it on your little devices, right? I see it on my little device. How do you handle it? When that phone is in your hand and you're on YouTube and on the side of the screen comes up all those little videos that want you to click on them, videos with scantily clad women or attractive-looking men, what do you do? 
What do you do with the sexually laced advertisements that fill the margin of the screen when you're scrolling through the internet? I mean, the world, it has cast off the fig leaf. Is that trend finding its way into our homes, the homes of the church? And what about when we actually physically dress ourselves, whatever the occasion? Are we, are we heading in the direction of the skimpy fig leaf? Or are we going toward that God-honoring animal skin covering? To say it differently, are you aiming to look hot for the opposite sex? Or are you aiming to be modest to the honor of the Lord? The Holy Spirit later in Scripture is very pointed through Paul's pen in 1 Timothy. He says about women, they should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Well, what applies there to women must equally apply to men. Modesty, respectable apparel, self-control. The world in its sin exalts what they call the uber-sexual male and the sexiest female of the year, where all assets are on display. But as sons and daughters of God, beloved, let us not do that. Let us strive for modesty in clothing, being beautiful. Yeah, be beautiful, but don't be seductive. Focus rather on the inner beauty of that quiet and gentle spirit the Lord loves the humble spirit that knows it's living in the face of God, below the eyes of God, 24-7. Those fig leaves of our first parents, they were not enough to hide their shame from God. They could not escape their guilt that way, not by their own human covering or by running and hiding. Mankind had zero ability to cover our own shame. But the Lord could cover it. The Lord could rescue them and us. Though He punished our first parents, He also gave the promise of deliverance. And now in our text, before He sends them out into the world, out of the garden, He first clothes them properly so that they no longer have to run from their God. They no longer have to hide from their God. They no longer have to stand in shame before their God. Look at that clothing that he chooses. Verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Garments of skin. Why skin? Why didn't the Lord take cotton from the cotton plant that He had created and spin two wonderful suits of clothing or robes? Why didn't He take bigger leaves or tall grasses and blend them into special outfits for them? The Lord didn't even see fit to take the wool from the sheep He had created and make out of them woolen garments. He took skins. Where did he get the skins? From an animal, two animals. He had to kill two animals to clothe his children. 
You see, brothers and sisters, the Lord shed blood that day. There was death that day in the Garden of Eden, physical death. It came, but it did not come to Adam and Eve as it should have. It came to two animals who had to die in their place, and that is what really takes away their shame. That is what allows man to continue living on the earth without having to run and hide whenever God would come around. They were covered by the blood That is the reason for their hope, that shedding of blood that day, that sacrifice of of, of animal life was a message to them. It was a pointer to another great sacrifice that had yet to come, the great seed of the woman. He would one day come, the Christ, and He would one day not shed the blood of animals, He would shed His own blood. Even as we celebrated at the Lord's table today, He would would shed His own blood in order to permanently cover man's shame. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus did? He let Himself be sacrificed in our place. He let our punishment fall upon His own head so that our guilt could be removed. He let Himself be exposed to the utmost shame as well. Did you know that the Lord Jesus was crucified without any clothing? He was naked as He hung on the cross. No animal skin for Jesus. No fig leaf even for Jesus. The soldiers gambled for His clothing at the foot of the cross while He hung there in all His humiliation and shame, which was really our shame. He did that, brothers and sisters, so that you and I can be clothed properly with the white robes of His righteousness. He let Himself be uncovered so that we might always be covered in the sight of God. So when we dress ourselves in the morning, Let's not disassociate our dress from the Christian walk of life. Remember how Christ let Himself be stripped naked for your sake and mine. Our shame, our sin and shame has been covered by His blood. So then let's let the clothing we put on ourselves reflect the fact that we have that covering from above. And with that divine clothing, we may then look forward to a better day. Look forward to our return home, our homecoming into the presence of God. For there's something else marvelous about our text. Paradise, the garden paradise, is not destroyed. You know, it would have been a simple matter for the Lord to simply send fire down from heaven and burn up at least the Garden of Eden. He certainly could have at least cut down the tree of life. That would have solved the problem of man no longer eating from it in his depravity. Man had ruined paradise. Man had brought the seed of destruction into the world. And yet, though God blocks the way to the tree of life, He does not uproot the tree. He doesn't Take the tree away. Man can't get into the Garden of Eden, but he can still see it. He knows it's there, and that strengthens hope. 
For think about it, beloved Adam and Eve. They were driven, it says, east of the garden, but not entirely away from the garden. In chapter 4, Moses will tell us that Cain was driven away altogether from the place called Edom. So it follows that Adam and Eve were still living in or, or near Edom at that time. They were banished from the garden, but they lived adjacent to the garden in Eden or in and around Eden. Every day they saw that garden, their old home. They saw the cherubim standing the guard. They, they, they saw the flashing sword, and they shivered at its sight. But nevertheless, every day they saw the way things used to be. The Lord preserved the garden as a testimony to them, for now the way is blocked because of your sin, but the tree of life, it still exists. One day I will reopen the way to the tree of life so that you can gain access again. And that way was opened through Jesus. Anybody who dared to come close to the flashing sword or the two cherubim, anybody who wanted to pass that way would die. But Jesus was willing to pass that way, and He did die. He traveled that road that led to a confrontation with God's wrath, and there on Golgotha, He entered into the flaming fire of the wrath of God to put to rest that wrath forever and clear the way to the tree of life to bring God's people into the company of angels again, in the company of those cherubim to sing around the throne, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Beloved, that way stands open now. Jesus has opened it for you and me and all who repent and believe. That was His promise also to the church in Ephesus. That's His promise to the church in Ancaster too. We read it, Revelation 2, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus has unbarred the way. Paradise has not been lost. Paradise has been preserved. The tree of life has not been destroyed. It is waiting for us. So let us go there together, beloved. Washed clean in the blood of Jesus and clothed in His pure white robes through faith, let's go there to that paradise of God and eat of the tree of life. Amen.